Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. This is the first in a three-part series of episodes in which we are going to examine the first, second, and third waves of feminism in the 20th century. In this first episode, we will see how women fought throughout the early, early 1900s for their right to vote, to just gain a legal status. We'll explore how women first rebelled against the systems which had tied them down for so very long. The second wave, which took place in the bra-burning 60s and into the 70s, was for the liberation of women in culture, how women dress and behave. In this phase, women fought to change the perception in society as to their rights in marriage and parenthood. Then finally, in the third episode, we will cover the third wave of feminism, in which the fight evolved to focus on changing how women were portrayed in media, from being either sex symbols and or helpless damsels needing rescuing, to becoming badass, powerful women who could just look after themselves. Furthermore, hang on, hello? Hey guys, what are you up to? Hi Dom, how are ya? I heard you guys are doing a podcast about feminism. Uh, yeah, just, you know, haven't put one out in a while, so I thought, you know, it could be about time. Uh, guys, uh, I think we've been listening to men talk about women's problems for way too long. Why don't you just uh, give the power back to the pussy? I got this one. Oh, Dom, you want to do the podcast? Yeah, I think uh, I'm going to do a better job. I've got the right equipment. Thank God, because I have no idea what I'm talking about. <laughs> so, without further ado, Dom. I am a woman. I am born into society and world which, without my sisters and I, would cease to exist. This is a huge responsibility, and one which you would think would command us more recognition, respect and relevance in making decisions about how that world is shaped. Yet the only agreed upon function I hold within the multitude of societies on our planet, the only involvement I am traditionally guaranteed, is solely that, to keep the machinery of human civilization alive to keep giving birth and propagating the species, any other right beside that, if held, must be pursued, fought for, and defended. Every modern woman carries a torch of constant generational vigilance. Whenever a woman is subjected to discrimination or abuse, whatever that may be, she bears this torch. Whenever a woman achieves justice or progress in the pursuit of our right to hold an equal footing in society, 
She continues both the plight and fight of every single one of our mothers and aunts that came before us. You might be thinking that as a modern woman living in a progressive Western country, that I'm being perhaps overdramatic, an hysterical woman, thinking that I'm oppressed or don't have equality. But I'm not. The story of our struggle for rights has been long and complex. Luckily, that shit has never stopped a woman before. So let's get into this. Welcome to Stuff What You Tell Me. This episode is called Power to the Pussy. It's brought to you by vaginas, you know, like everything else. From the moment we are born, we are told we must obey. It's a mistake to rebel, treason to defy. Change is a dreaded thing, until it's not. These are the stories of those who disobey and their acts of defiance, world-changing or inconsequential. The characters who forge their own paths and the cycles of change driven by women and men willing to stand up, look authority in the face and say, stuff you and stuff what you tell me. This episode is about the story of suffragettes in Britain in the early 20th century. These were women who held high the torch of female rebellion and waved it furiously for the advancement of women's rights. But before we take a look at their story, let's take an all too brief look at the preceding millennia and see how, by the time the 1900s rolled around, the subjugation of women was so entrenched and normalized that it would take extreme and often violent action to change it. The context or condition of the fight for women's rights cannot be viewed in isolation, separate from the history of humanity's struggle for rights in general. Yet, if we are able to somehow identify and examine the roots of continued female oppression in the Western world, those roots would be found deep within distorted views of the ancient past. As people in Europe and Asia began an agricultural existence in 9000 to 4000 BCE, there would have been varying tasks and roles needed to be undertaken to sustain permanent habitation. Conditions would have varied greatly over great expanses of time in various places around the world. During the Bronze Age, in China for instance, archaeological discoveries of burial ceremonies from this period suggest that both women and men went through the same rituals and received an equality of commemoration. In Europe around the mid to the end of the Iron Age and into the rise of Greek philosophy, we begin to see the foundational pillars of the cultural misogyny which endures to this day. In the 300s BCE, Aristotle surmised that women were by nature inferior, as we shall see in a few choice quotes. Quote, The male, unless constituted in some respect contrary to nature, is by nature more expert at leading than the female, and the elder and complete than the younger and incomplete. End quote. Well, here's another one. Quote, the relation of male to female is by nature a relation of superior to inferior and ruler to ruled. End quote. He goes on mansplaining, quote, Wherefore women are more compassionate and more readily made to weep, more jealous and quarrelous, founder of the railing and more contentious. The female is more subject to depression of spirit and despair than the male. She is also more shameless and false, more readily deceived and more mindful of injury, more watchful, more idle, and on the whole, less excitable than the male. On the contrary, the male is more ready to help, and, as it has been said, braver than the female. And even in malaria, if the sepia is stuck with a trident, the male comes to help the female, but the female makes her escape if the male is struck. End quote. 
What hope was there for a woman if these were the words of the man whose ideas, more than any other, would shape how people saw the world for the next one and a half thousand years and more? We can add this to the very large list called Things Aristotle Was Completely Wrong About. Aristotle's philosophies went on to greatly influence Christianity and Islamic faiths. Judaism already had an ancient legacy of patriarchal obedience to hearken. And Christianity and Islam grew out of a context in which male domination and female submission was normalized. Europe, in ancient times, varied greatly between the Mediterranean world and the northwest fringes. In most Celtic, Gaelic and Germanic societies, up until as far as 60 CE, women are thought to have been far more empowered within the social fabric than in the continent south. Strong female leaders like Queen Boudicca, a Celtic queen of the Iceni tribe in Britain who led an uprising against the Romans on two occasions, marked a contrast to the submissive property that was a Roman wife or daughter. An example of female empowerment in the Mediterranean world is the story of Kiomara, a woman of extreme beauty who lived in the 2nd century BCE. She was a Galician noblewoman who lived in the highlands of today's Turkey. After being raped and assaulted by a Roman centurion, she was eventually ransomed back to her husband for a large sum of money. After the deal had been done, according to Plutarch, she nodded to one of her rescuers so that he would smite the Roman who had held her. With his head wrapped in the folds of her dress, she took the prize home to her husband and threw it by his feet, at which he declared, quote, A noble thing, dear wife, is fidelity. Yes, she said, but it is a nobler thing that only one man be alive who has been intimate with me. End quote. That's fucked up, but also pretty empowering. In the first three centuries of the common era, Christianity was spreading. By the 300 CE, the religion had been absorbed by the establishment of the Roman Empire and the Bible was being translated into Latin and spread out by missionary monks. The structure of power in Rome had been a male-dominated one for centuries. As the worship of Christ became a central part of that structure and amid all the schisms and adaptations it went through, it became embedded by the authority of man. One quote nicely illustrates this. Quote, no matter whether the most blessed Virgin Mary stands higher and is more lustrous than all the apostles together, it was still not to her, but to them, that the Lord entrusted the keys to the kingdom of heaven. End quote. That was Pope Innocent III. An Aristotelian worldview and the eventual rise and domination of Abrahamic Christianity became pillars of a structure that would be responsible for dooming the power of the XX chromosome throughout the Middle Ages. Women were basically the property of their husbands or male protectors. As property, any violation against them was seen as being bad not because they hurt the woman, but rather because they infringed on a male's property rights. In Deuteronomy it says, quote, If a man happens to meet a virgin who is not pledged to be married and he rapes her and they are discovered, he shall pay her father 50 shekels of silver. He must marry the young woman, for he has violated her. He can never divorce her as long as he lives. End quote. Oh, poor bloke, not being able to divorce her. What about the woman forced to marry her rapist? As the high middle ages rolled by, women were able to play a few roles in society. They could be a wife, a mother, a peasant, an artisan, or perhaps a nun. The only roles which gave them any sort of freedom or power were as an artisan, where they may have been able to join guilds in some towns and cities, or as a nun, where their submissiveness to God earned them a greater respect than they would otherwise have received. In the upper reaches of European society, women were the property exchanged between family and houses so as to solidify political alliances. Some women, in elevated positions, found ways to wield power and influence to work the system to their benefit. 
Eleanor of Aquitaine was a French duchess who became one of the most powerful and wealthiest women in Western Europe. She led armies, she mothered legendary kings, and even managed, after a few tries, to divorce her husband. Another example was Isabel I of Castile, who along with her husband, Ferdinand II, went on the reconquista of the Iberian Peninsula in the name of the church. On a grassroot level, we know little about the empowerment of women in medieval European society. With a population that was by a large majority illiterate, there are few records left by those who were not part of the learned aristocracy, Catholic clerical system, or by state administrators and accountants. Certainly in the clergy, nuns could leave an important and lasting impression on their communities. One example is Hilgard of Bingen, who contributed widely to the understanding of natural sciences. She also wrote some incredible spiritual music, which has become quite popular in the last 30 years, and we definitely recommend you go and listen to it. It's pretty much exactly what you would expect music to sound like, written by a nun in a convent a thousand years ago. It's like Amy Winehouse, but the complete opposite. They try to make me go to a convent, and I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. In terms of laity, people not connected officially to the church, and keep in mind that every person in Europe except Jews, and in some parts Muslims, could only be faithful to the Holy Roman Church, the Bagaians provide an example of female empowerment in the medieval times. They also provide an example of what consequences empowered women were likely to face. Bagaians were not nuns, and they didn't take the vows of nuns. Instead, in parts of France and the Low Countries, they set up female-only societies that were independent from male control and from which members were free to leave at any time. Begainages did not run necessarily with the kind of hierarchy structure of clerical institutions like abbeys and convents. Each begainage formed according to its own individual and agreed-upon system of order by the community running it. This kind of independence from the control of the patriarch of the church was unacceptable to the church. More than one begain was burned at the stake for their independence of thought and action. The Reformation saw the acceleration of what would become an expansion of social liberties that continue to this day. With the rise of Protestantism came an emphasis on individual connection to God, achieved through each person being able to read and interpret the Bible. The need to read necessitated an increase of education beyond the clergy, which extended to women. However, although there was perhaps greater and more egalitarian access to the Bible within societies that became predominantly Protestant, Still, the hierarchy power structure of those societies remained the patriarchal domain of men. Catholic establishments reacted to theoretic reformism with things like witch trials, such as those in Germany and France during the Thirty Year War. Although men, women and children would all suffer, women showing any particular independence or quirkiness were especially at risk. The Age of the Enlightenment is a label that carries a lot of promise. Alas, even some of the greatest and most liberal-minded thinkers of their day were anything but enlightened when it came to women. Take Barack Spinoza, one of the most influential thinkers during this era. Spinoza mirrored Aristotle's views on women's roles in society. In the final words on the last page of his unfinished work called A Political Treaty, written shortly before his death in 1677, quote, But if by nature women were equal to men, and were equally distinguished by force of character and ability, in which human power and therefore human right chiefly consist, surely among nations so many and different, some would be found, where both sexes ruled alike, and others where men are ruled by women, and so brought up that they can make less use of their abilities. And since this is no way the case, 
One may assert with perfect propriety that women have not by nature equal right with men, but that they necessarily give way to men, and that thus it cannot happen that both sexes should rule alike, much less than men should be ruled by women. But if we further reflect upon human passions, how men in fact generally love women merely from the passion of lust and esteem their cleav- cleavage. <laughs> That's what I was going to say. <laughs> their cleverness and wisdom in proportion to the excellence of their beauty and also how very ill-disposed men are to suffer the woman they love to show any sort of favor to others and other facts of this kind, we shall easily see that men and women cannot rule alike without great hurt to peace. But of this enough. End quote. Yeah, I guess now we know why he was never married. In literature, in the mid-1700s, the attitude towards women was improving. New trends such as novels became a fashion. It was a novel idea that you could write a story based on anything for people to read as a leisure activity. Although many women found success with this, much of it was by publishing either anonymously or under a man's name and often without the permission of their male protectors. Women such as Fanny Burney, thank God it's not burning Fanny, and Elizabeth Carter saw great success with their literature, particularly with their novels. Many of these dealing with women's roles in marriage and politics became hugely popular. Meanwhile, in French cities during the 17th and 18th century, so-called salons entrenched themselves in the fabric of metropolitan life. They were like bars, theatres and social houses of entertainment. Two of the most famous, in Paris of course, oh shit, here comes my bad French accent, Hotel de Rambouillet and Hotel Les Marais. Salons were run by saloniers, women who had a position of leadership and guidance within the confines of the salon, and became seen as intelligent, self-educated and influential women. To whom, in such a setting, men would actually listen to. Salinia selected the guests to the salons, chose the topics and themes of the night, and mediated the discussions. They are generally agreed to become fundamental in facilitating the discourse of ideas on social and individual liberties that would foster the Enlightenment, and many of the ideas which would eventually erupt in revolutionary fervor in France in the latter half of the 18th century. In the most idealized sense, salons provided a safe space for egalitarian interaction and exchange. The age of the Enlightenment was both complex and contradictory for women in Europe and in the colonies. In huge political events such as the French and American Revolution, all the established orders and privileges were swept away, and the idea of rights and liberties came into being. Yet many of the leading figures in these events were rehashing archaic ideas promoting gender and racial inequalities. The most important document produced in the French Revolution was literally called the Declaration of Rights of Man and of the Citizen. Women don't even rate a mention? The same goes for the United States Constitution, which was written entirely by men, the Founding Fathers. Although the document itself uses gender-neutral words like persons instead of man and woman, the principles of coverture ruled at the time, in which, after marriage, husband and wife were treated as one legal entity. When she said... I do, she was effectively saying, goodbye and fuck you to my personal rights. At this time, in the Victorian era, women's rights movements in Europe and North America began to expand beyond church-based communities, although they would remain integral. In the USA, as both male and female slaves fled from slave states, women's unions and committees and their members were often participants in the illegal activity of giving them sanctuary. These groups also became active in demonstrations across the country, Women linking arms to freed slaves against the oppressor they both shared. 
as a woman living in Britain during the 1800s, to attempt to live one's ambitions, fulfill one's sense of purpose or follow one's dreams, was to make oneself vulnerable to the contradictions of the age. A society where ingrained cultural misogyny dated back thousands of years clashed with the relatively new ideas of individual rights and freedoms. Legally, you would have no control of your lot in life, and any attempt to do such is subversive to the values of your society. Every move you make, every decision you take, he will be watching you. All that is expected of you is to exist in a man's world, generally bound to the household and to his whims. Based on a culture of enforced paternalism, which you are taught throughout your life to respect and love, and for which you should be grateful, you are a slave to your father, to your brother, and then to your husband. You are their property holding no opinion that matters. As a married woman in Britain, you would have given birth to an average of seven children. Although if you're lucky, you may find recourse to own a business, you may not obtain higher education, own property, have custody rights over your seven children, your body is not your own. If you marry, your legal identity ceases to exist. You are a femme covert. It was around the latter half of the 19th century that the struggle for women's rights and gender equality ramped up in Britain. In his essay, The Subjection of Woman, British philosopher and parliamentarian John Stuart Mill argued that discrimination against women was wrong in and of itself. In his opening paragraph, Mill says, quote, that the principle which regulates the existing social relation between the two sexes, the legal subordination of one sex to the other, is wrong itself, and now one of the chief hindrances to human improvement, and that it ought to be replaced for principle of perfect equality, admitting no power or privilege on the one side, nor disability on the other. End quote. As a parliamentarian, he pushed for women's rights to vote. He believed that participation in politics was one of the important aspects of a good and happy life. Certain groups of women started coming together to fight for initial change to the system and structure. In 1880, the Elementary Education Act was passed, allowing all children between 5 and 10 years, including girls, to gain the right to education. Also, in 1882, the Married Women's Property Act recognised that husbands and wives were, in fact, two separate legal identities and gave wives the right to buy, sell and own property for themselves. Oh yay, we finally exist! By the beginning of the 20th century, although some gains had been made, groups of women began to agitate for more. These were women who were no longer willing to accept their second-class status based merely on their gender, but instead chose to defy, obstruct, starve themselves, petition, tirelessly write letters, devise legislation, and even turn to violence in their fight for the basic right of a citizen, the right to vote. Oh, now that we've smashed out over 2,000 years of Western history and set out the context for rebellion, after this break, we will be introduced to perhaps the most badass woman who ever rocked petticoats. The turn of the 19th into the 20th century was a time of dramatic change, upheaval and tension. The death of the early modern era was truly approaching in the form of World War I. By the first years of the 1900s, over 5 million women were actively involved in the workforce in Britain. They were earning wages by doing either domestic services or working in light manufacturing, mainly in textile factories, or in some cases in light manual labour positions. Women were now not only consumers, but also producers. 
Yet still, they had only very few basic rights. Most importantly, they didn't have the right to vote or stand in public office. The lack of suffrage meant they had no choice as to who would be responsible for making decisions, many over labor and workforce issues that would directly affect them. They would have to pay taxes, yet still not have the right to vote or stand for public office. The Americans had fought the British king 130 years earlier for suffering taxation without representation. The women in Britain were now about to do the same. In 1897, the National Union of Women's Suffrage Society was established. It consists mainly of middle-class women who began to call themselves suffragists. The strategy of the NUWSS was largely one of passive activism. Its leader, Millicent Fawcett, fuck I've never heard a more British name, followed a course of logical arguments, patience, pressure on school boards and peaceful protest to persuade men to give women the vote. She believed women must follow the laws if they wanted to be including in making those laws. Writing letters or hosting meetings to butter up politicians and convince them to sway their policies was the NUWSS style. Fawcett expressed this approach when she once wrote, quote, I can never feel that setting fire to houses and churches and letterboxes and destroying valuable pictures really helps to convince people that women ought to be enfranchised, end quote. Many women, however, grew tired of and felt defeated by this approach. Constantly denied by politicians and societies that were hell-bent on obstructing women in any progress towards any suffrage, some frustrated women began to look at more radical means. In Manchester in 1903, six such women came together to form a more militant splinter group called the Women's Social and Political Union, or the WSPU. Emmeline Pankhurst and her eldest of three daughters, Christabel, were the leaders of this radical group. These women had come to believe that only through more aggressive, militant means would women gain the attention needed to further their plight for basic rights. They would become known as the suffragettes, steadfast in their belief that women needed to make noise on the streets, on busy squares and at political rallies, they became active in inspiring such actions. Although the WSPU was initially set up for any woman from any class, race or work of life, Emmeline Panko slowly came to realize that the voices of middle to lower class women held little value in the eyes of society. Campaigning later shifted, prompting more upper class widows with more time and money, to join the WSPU. These upper-class members would eventually come to dominate it. Their motto was, Deeds, not words. Although the WSPU wanted to be seen and heard, they had no violent or destructive agendas at first. They started simply by making speeches in public places such as cinemas and by demonstrating publicly. At this time, an average of 20 million people weekly were attending the cinema, so that meant a guaranteed regular audience. Other than public speaking, the suffragettes also marched through the streets and collaborated with the news media. The start of the WSPU coincidentally coincided with the development of film, something that would become a new favorite tool for the news media. One of the best strategies the suffragettes put into action was in their use of film. They would invite news cameras to all of their events, ensuring the cameras arrived early, allowing them to occupy the best viewpoints. These films showed large amounts of people supporting the suffragettes and reached the eyes of people all across Britain, winning them the sympathy. Early on, like the NUWSS, from which they'd emerged, the WSPU continued to work on having women's suffrage bills submitted to Parliament. In 1905, when this proved a failure, they changed tactics, refusing from then on to support any political candidate in power and to defy and protest any legislation that did not include their demands. 
One of their earliest protests was also in 1905, when Cressible Pankhurst and Annie Kenny interrupted a political meeting in Manchester to ask two popular politicians at the time, Winston Churchill and Sir Edward Grey, if they believed women should have the right to vote. When neither answered, the two women responded by pulling out a large white banner which read in thick black print, Votes for Women. Both women were fined for their troubles but refused to pay, opting instead for prison in the hope that this would then demonstrate the injustice that women faced. It would be just one of many acts of defiance that would slowly expose and widen the cracks. The WSPU was the only suffragette group who went beyond passive protest and into hardcore militancy. They were about to leave a massive imprint on their society. One of them in particular, however, was destined to leave a legacy that would be remembered to this day. Emily Davison was born in Greenwich, South East London, October of 1872. Her parents, Charles and Margaret Davison, enjoyed a 26-year age gap. I don't mean to be judgy, but that's gross. Over the course of their marriage, they had three children. Luckily for Margaret, however, she also had to care for nine other kids from Charles's first marriage. Charles was a semi-retired merchant, so really in the middle class of society. This means Emily would have enjoyed reasonable comfort for the time, but nothing too extensive. Twelve kids is a shitload of porridge to have to provide. Emily received homeschooling until the age of 11 when her family moved back to London. She had an affinity for learning and continued on in school, later on even spending a year abroad in France. In the 1890s, whilst enrolled in college reading English literature, her father died. With the patriarch of the family gone, her mother didn't have the expenses to continue her tuition. Having just one term left to finish her honours, Emily was forced to quit school. But she was a so-called new woman, strong, determined and not willing to let the obstacles of her life stop her from achieving what she wanted. She found paid work as a governess during the day to pay her tuition while attending night classes. Able to finance one more term, she enrolled at St. Hugh's College in Oxford and completed her honours in English. As a woman, however, she was not permitted to graduate or receive a degree from Oxford. Can you imagine how crap this would be? Achieve the merit of accomplishing all the work? and being denied a degree because you have a vagina instead of a cock. She had managed to overcome personal and financial obstacles, against all odds, only to be met with a wall of cocks she could not conquer. Emily continued teaching in private and public schools all around England, up until 1902, when she enrolled in the University of London, which actually allowed women to graduate. In 1908, she finally received her degree. But by then, another, more important cause had come into her life. Emily Davison joined the WSPU during a successful 1906 street campaign which added 5,000 members to their ranks. She became a fully involved and active member, dedicating her time, brain and resources to the cause. Working with the WSPU gave her a sense of meaning, feeling as if she had found her calling and was on the path that was her destiny. In 1909, upon release from prison for assaulting a police officer in the line of duty when a march at Caxton Hall was stopped by the cops, she wrote, quote, through my humble work in the noblest of all causes, I have come into a fullness of job and an interest in living which I never before experienced. End quote. She quickly moved up the ranks, becoming an officer of organization and chief steward during marches, a role she loved and worked hard at. By 1909, Emily quit her day job to dedicate herself fully to the WSPU. She believed big pushes were needed if they were to secure the vote. Emily had fire and determination in her heart and was later described by Sylvia Pankhurst, second daughter of Emmeline, as, quote, 
one of the most daring and reckless of all the militants, end quote. From 1906 to 1910, the WSPU continued with protesting and inciting their own arrests through acts like vandalism and public assault on major figures. One of the leaders of the WSPU, Flora Drummond, conducted stunts like hiring a boat to go past Parliament via the River Thames, shouting the grievances of suffragettes and abuse at the MPs sitting on their fancy terraces overlooking the river. She would be arrested multiple times, along with the Pankhursts and many other active women of the WSPU. Most movements for rights and freedom are at some point or another torn by the question of how violent they should be in the pursuit of their goals. This question had, after all, prompted the creation of the WSPU out of the NUWSS. The Pankhursts and those who thought as they did felt that violence may be necessary and that pacifism was ineffective. In 1907, over 70 of the WSPU's members themselves split off to form the less militant Women's Freedom League. Feeling that Christabel Pankhurst had become too autocratic within the WSPU, but also that perhaps their law breaking methods were too extreme. So, by 1910, those involved in the WSPU were amongst the hardcore female activists like Emily Davison, fully invested and committed to the approach laid out by the Pankhurst. This was an approach that was open to taking extreme measures when it came to the question of how far they should go in the pursuit of their rights. On the 18th of November, 1910, an event so terrible happened that in the aftermath, the suffragettes would feel they had no option but to explore these extreme measures. The event is called Black Friday. Is that like the shopping day? Shut the fuck up, Julian. Don't you make a joke about women and shopping completely unrelated. UK politics in 1910 and I know this is going to be really surprising to you, was embroiled in petty struggles for power between conservative and liberal forces in which various promises were made by both sides to different groups in efforts to gain their support. The Chancellor of the incumbent Liberal Party, Herbert Asquith, had taken over leadership in 1908 due to illness to the PM and during the controversy surrounding the budget of 1909. This budget was called the People's Budget. It aimed to redistribute wealth more widely and create massive social welfare programs. But its passage was blocked by the House of Lords, who are not called the House of Lords because they like wealth distribution. Asquith called an election to secure a mandate on this budget, and the suffragettes took the opportunity of an election to put their agenda as far to the forefront as they could. Asquith had never on record anyway, being in favour of women's suffrage. However, during campaigning, he assured those pushing for female suffrage that should he be elected, he would enter bills of conciliation that included elements of female suffrage. With these insurances from the campaigning Asquith, suffragettes agreed to halt all protests and rallies. They called a truce of sorts. The result of the election was a hung parliament in which liberals lost the majority vote but took two seats more than the conservatives. Forming an alliance with the Irish Parliamentary Party, Asquith was elected PM. Hopes would have been high for the suffragettes as a new committee was formed by pro-female suffrage MPs and they proposed legislation that would enfranchise an estimated million women in national elections. But Asquith pulled the old political one-two. One being, oh yeah, we'll help you if you help us. And two being, well, actually, you can go get stuffed. Although the Bill of Conciliation was introduced on the 14th of June, Asquith and others ensured its delay over the next several months, limiting the amount of time that the Parliament would dedicate to it. He ultimately doomed it to fail from the start, despite 200 MPs collectively requesting he give it more discussion time. It was voted on once, 
with 110 more votes for than against. But then it was time for summer break, so in reality, nothing had moved forward. Still, the suffragettes maintained the truce, didn't demonstrate or make any unruly display. On November 12th, however, the request for more readings and discussion time on the bill was formally negated and the bill was shelved. The suffragettes were outraged at the slight. So they sprang into action. At noon, that very same day, the WSPU held a meeting at Caxton Hall, Westminster. In their eyes, the truce was over. They would hit the streets again and they would do it on the day that Parliament officially reconvened. Friday, November 18th. They decided to gather all forces and arrange a march to Parliament to disrupt the Asquith-led parliamentary session. They wanted to show that they would never accept or allow such betrayal without a fight. Like they had done in the past, they alerted the media about their impending demonstration so that it would cover and reach as large an audience as possible. So let's now go there in 1910 and put ourselves on the ground, marching to the House of Parliament with about 300 angry, determined and defiant women. The sky above London is grey, one continuous dark cloud looming over. Somewhere above that greyness there must be light, the warm light from the sun's rays. But it is nowhere to be found here. I lower my head to look down on my hands. They are shaking. Partly because of how cold it is, but mostly because I'm anxious. Twenty-three women in groups of eleven and twelve have already left, walking together as sisters, ready to face the injustice as one. Three hundred of us have been divided into smaller groups by one of our leaders, Flora Drummond. She's a fearless woman. During the previous years of activism, she's become somewhat of an icon for us. In all the demonstrations, she dons military-style wear and leads from the front. We call her the general. I have often wondered if she took these from her father or husband, or if she maybe even stole them. Today, our hope of any sort of equality has been broken. Broken by a man who knows nothing about being a woman, but who still decides everything about our lives. When my friend was knocking on my door this morning, out of breath, declaring all WSPU members meet at Caxton Hall, I knew my sisters in womanhood were ready to take up the cause once more. News has already returned that the first group, led by Emmeline Pankhurst, arrived at the St. Stephen's entrance of Parliament at 1.20. Upon arrival, they were met by a police officer, and at first there seemed to be hope. They were told they could meet someone inside. They were led into the building, but returned shortly after. They had only been allowed to meet with Asquith's private secretary, who informed them that the PM would not see them. This news hasn't dampened our passions. It has only fueled the fire. My group is the next to depart. We're all getting churchery. We want to be there for our sisters. We need our voices to be heard and answered. Before my nose get the better of me, we are off. Twelve women walking, singing, marching towards Westminster Abbey. I have a laugh with the girl next to me. She has a sock stuffed in her crotch and she's holding a board which reads, A prick does not make the politician. Soon... I am laughing no longer. We get closer to our destination, but as my eyes meet the horizon, I can hardly see the parliament building. I only see line upon line of police officers, followed by a large crowd of men. Our only way forward is to pass through them. As we push, we become separated. I'm short. In some ways, it's easier for me to weave through the many bodies, ducking underneath, making my way to the front. But it's still chaotic. There are bodies and movement everywhere, and the noise is a blend of high and low-pitched shouts. There are also screams. I feel like some of them are thick with anxiety. Suddenly I feel someone touching my leg, fingers moving towards my upper thigh. 
The disgusting, cold, clammy hand squeezes my skin and pushes up towards my crotch. It pushes me towards the body attached to it, up against it. I'm shocked and frozen. Then I look up at whoever is touching me, glaring down at me. Sick smile planted on his leering face is a police constable. The very person who should be protecting me against intrusion is right now violating me, unhindered. I try to hit him in his face, but he's strong. The best I can do is scratch across his cheek. Now he's angry. I can see the rage building up in his eyes. His fingers grasp my breast and he screams in my face. I don't know what he's saying, but the feel of spittle and hate come over me. His breath smells like rotten sardines and cigarette smoke. As I'm pushed to the ground, I hear the screams intensify. They are coming from my sisters. These are not the screams of protest, no. These screams are of desperation and panic. The last thing I see before my nose slams down on the coarse ground is the girl whose board I'd been giggling about. She is cowering down, using her signboard as a shield while three men are bearing down on her with their batons. My nose hits the ground. The immediate taste of blood fills my mouth. Everything goes black. When the women of the WSPU marched on the House of Parliament on the 18th of November, 1910, what occurred was a six-hour onslaught of police brutality by uniformed police and, it is believed, officers in plain clothes. They were aggressive beyond reason. Women were sexually assaulted, their nipples twisted, they were beaten of batons and fists, many thrown to the ground and kicked, some of their faces rubbed against railings, their dignities taken away with no regard. Caxton Hall was used throughout the day as a medical post for those injured. Sylvia Pankhurst later described the carnage of the day. Quote, We saw women go out and return exhausted, with black eyes, bleeding noses, bruises, sprains and dislocations. The cries went round. Be careful, they are dragging women down the side streets. We knew this always made greater ill usage. End quote. By the end of Black Friday, 115 women and four men had been arrested. Some historians believe that an official order from above had directed police to use force instead of arrest. The next day, a photograph was published on the front page of the Daily Mirror. It showed a woman named Ada Wright huddled on the ground after a brutal attack, hands clutching her face. The government attempted to ban the publication of this picture. But it was too late. It was already out there for everyone to see. Anyway, although pictures of the brutal police reaction had hit newspapers, most editorials and articles took sympathetic side of the police. The Conciliation Committee, those pro-female suffrage MPs whose bill had been so neglected by the establishment which had led to the riots, were angered by the stories. They interviewed 135 demonstrators, nearly all of whom described acts of violence against the women. 29 of the statements included details of sexual assault. Calls for public inquiry, however, were rejected by the young Home Secretary, who was some dude called Winston Churchill, who refused to allow for a government inquiry into the events of Black Friday to be conducted. This just reiterated once more that within the reaches of the male-dominant establishment, suffragettes would find no conciliation at all. Black Friday had an immediate impact on both the rebellious women of the WSPU and the establishment in general. From that point, the police would take a more measured approach to the women's protests and activism. Within two months of Black Friday, two suffragettes died. One being the youngest sister of Emmeline Pankhurst, Mary Jane Clark. At age 48, she was arrested for breaking windows on the 23rd of November and after a month in prison, died two days following her release. 
Another suffragette, Henria Williams, said to have suffered terrible brutality on Black Friday, died of a heart attack in January. Many attributed their deaths to the trauma they suffered on Black Friday. For the WSPU, there were different reactions amongst its members. Although some organised enjoyed immediate demonstrations that followed, others were shaken by Black Friday and discontinued actions that would put them at risk. Some contacted the media, writing letters describing the individual experiences of the assault. Others took to doing things that would show their defiance, but also allow them to avoid or escape the wrath of the police, like throwing stones at things and people. The suffragettes chose the colours purple, white and green to represent them. Purple stood for loyalty and dignity, white for purity and green for hope. They would sew and incorporate these colours into their clothes, which they were increasingly encouraged by the WSPU to keep neat and respectable. I love the image of these badass Edwardian women in their laced skirts and neat blouses interwoven with purple, white and green, creeping up on a policeman from behind throwing some rocks at a cop's head before hitching their skirts up and running away cheekily laughing. <laughs> Eventually though, on the 17th of June 1911, on the night of King George V's coronation, they deployed once more. 40,000 people, including women from 28 different suffrage societies, marched for women's suffrage. This amazing show of people suggested that the battle for public support was turning their way. Further attempts to enter conciliation bills continued, although the eternal complex crappiness of UK politics meant that many hurdles kept popping up. The ruling government was on shaky grounds. Asquith, it depended on the support of the Irish Parliamentary Party, whose main priority was Irish home rule, not women's suffrage. Remember that British politics was embroiled in all sorts of complicated tensions and issues. The wealth distribution agenda of the Liberals still fueled the cantankerousness from the ever-cantankerous House of Lords. Universal male suffrage was not even a thing yet, and so people were also lobbying for more men to be given the vote. Plus, on the foreign policy front, aside from the burning fuse of Irish home rule, the Germans were now in full arms race mode with Britain, and in a seemingly expansionist mode. So a lot was going on, and as usual, women's affairs were put to the wayside, because, you know, we're just women. Almost exactly a year after Black Friday, November 1911, Asquith announced a manhood suffrage bill, which would see a large portion of men, previously unable to vote, gain the right. No bill for women existed. But in 1912, another bill was introduced and given a second reading, which was more than had happened to the first failed bill in 1910 prior to the Black Friday demonstrations. This bill in 1912, however, was downvoted, primarily by the Irish Parliamentary Party, who were concerned that those against Irish Home Rule would somehow use the time and discussion over women's suffrage to deny this agenda. Now, with the issue of female rights being used for political play by powerful men, Suffragettes felt they truly had no choice but to once more up their game. The period that followed from 1912 to 1914 saw the height of the suffragettes' use of militant tactics. They burned down churches identifying the Church of England as being against their cause and even set a bomb off in Westminster. They chained themselves to Buckingham Palace, protesting that the royal family were against female suffrage. Uh, must have been a big surprise that the royal family was against any change or progress. Suffragettes vandalised shops by breaking windows in Oxford Street to make a point that politicians cared more for shop windows than women's rights. Politicians were attacked, their empty homes bombed and golf courses were targeted. One, the Roehampton Golf Club, was set on fire in 1913 
by Olive Hocken, who had joined the WSPU a year before. Golf clubs are targeted because they were men only. It is often erroneously stated that the word golf is an acronym of gentlemen only, ladies forbidden. But it may as well have been the case. The militant suffragettes suffered through police brutality, prison torture, alienation and public mockery. And all the suppression was giving them more drive. It strengthened and united these women more than they already were. In their exploration of the extremities of defiance, some found the fortitude to go further in showing their intent than others had before them. Through all of this, still one of their most fervent and committed members was Emily Davison. After Black Friday, when the WSPU gathered itself from the brutality and began their most militant phase, Emily was right there in the thick of it, next to her sisters-in-arms. She was thoughtful and strategically minded when choosing which events to protest and how she would use the repercussions of her actions to campaign for the cause. A perfect example of this was when she was arrested in October 1909 for attempting to throw stones at the cabinet minister, Sir Walter Ransman. She'd actually wanted to hit David Lloyd George, but had mistaken the first Baron Ransman for him. It's just that, you know... All rich, white, powerful men appear the same in our feeble, small, emotional brains. Emily used her court appearance to make a speech for women's suffrage and the WSPU. Her speech was later published in the newspaper. A week later, she amended her prior mistake by going out and finding Sir Ransman again, but this time not attempting, but actually and deliberately throwing stones at him again. For this, she was sentenced to a week's hard labor. Her response to this? was to begin a hunger strike. Hunger strikes were a tactic suffragettes had picked up from political prisoners who had fled Russia. The idea was to stop eating to the point of endangering one's health. By law, the prisoners had to be released in order for them to recover. The suffragettes went on hunger strikes to protest against not being recognized as political prisoners. For the British government, the idea that a suffragette would be released from prison for refusing food before finishing their sentence was unbearable. So they came up with what they felt was the only reasonable solution. Force-feeding sessions. The vile process of force-feeding is probably best described by a suffragette who actually experiences horrific punishment. Mary Lee tells us, quote, I was then surrounded and forced back into the chair, which was tilted backwards. There were about 10 persons around me. The doctor then forced my mouth so as to form a pouch and held me while one of the wardresses poured some liquid from a spoon. It was milk and brandy. After giving me what he thought was sufficient, he sprinkled me with eau de cologne, and the wardress then escorted me to another cell on the first floor. The wardresses forced me into a bed, and two doctors came in with them. While I was held down, a nasal tube was inserted. It was two yards long, with a funnel at the end. There was a glass junction in the middle to see if the liquid was passing. The end was put up left and right nostril on alternate days. Great pain was experienced during the process both mentally and physically, end quote. The most chilling account, in my opinion, is given by Constance Layton. Quote, Two of the women took hold of my arms. One held my head and one my feet. One wardress helped to pour the food. The doctor leaned on my knees as he stooped over my chest to get at my mouth. I shut my mouth and clenched my teeth. The sense of being overpowered by more force than I could possibly resist was complete. But I resisted nothing except with my mouth. The doctor offered me the choice of a wooden or steel gag. He explained that the steel gag would hurt and that the wooden one would not, and he urged me not to force him to use the steel one. But I did not speak nor open my mouth. 
So after playing about for a minute or two with the wooden one, he finally had recourse to the steel. The pain of it was intense. He got the gag between my teeth when he proceeded to turn it much more than necessary until my jaws were fast and wide apart, far more than they could go naturally. Then he put down my throat a tube which seemed to be much too wide and was something like four foot long. The irritation of the tube was excessive. I choked the moment it touched my throat until it had gone down. Then the food was poured in quickly. It made me sick a few seconds after it was all down, and the action of the sickness made my body and legs double up. But the wardress instantly pressed back my head and the doctor leaned on my knees. The horror of it was more than I can describe. I'd been sick over my hair or over the wall near my bed, and my clothes seemed saturated with vomit. The warders told me they could not get me a change of clothes as it was too late, the office was shut. End quote. Finally, from Emily herself, who would undergo this torture several times, she said of the effects that, quote, The experience will haunt me with its horrors all my life and is almost indescribable. The torture was barbaric. End quote. She was so traumatized after the first force-feeding session that she barricaded herself in her cell, pushing her bed and chair in front of the door to avoid further feeding. This seems like a pretty natural reaction to what she had just been through, and one might assume that the authorities would perhaps leave her alone for a while. But instead, they smashed open the window to her cell and stuck a fire hose, a literal phallic symbol of their domination, and began to fill it with water. They were finally able to open the door after the room was six inches deep in water. Emily wrote about the experience later saying, quote, I had to hold on like grim death. The power of the water seemed terrific and it was cold as ice. End quote. She was taken to the prison hospital, reheated like a cold, soggy, feminist crumpet and then force fed again. Emily Davison was arrested again in December 1911 for arson. She had set fire to several post boxes outside of Parliament Building, sentenced to six months in Holloway Prison. During her time there, she was force-fed again multiple times. Public reaction to the force-feeding would be tense and disapproving. Even though the suffragettes were becoming known for their militant tactics, they also kept using the media to portray the brutality of the establishment. The establishment's next move was the introduction of legislation that would become known as the Cat and Mouse Act. This ruled that hunger-striking suffragettes must be released, but then imprisoned again as soon as they had recovered their health. The suffragettes had their own response to the Cat and Mouse Act, which was referred to as the Bodyguard. This was a secret society of women whose sole role was to physically protect major figures of the movement, such as Emmeline Pankhurst and other prominent suffragettes. This was to stop them being exposed to such brutality. The woman rebels took up jiu-jitsu to fulfill their purpose and were notorious for orchestrating the escape of fugitive suffragettes from police surveillance. Between 1913 and 1914, their most famous ordeal was Battle of Glasgow, Scotland. 30 bodyguards fought and brawled with 50 police constables and detectives at St Andrews Hall. It was witnessed by over 4,500 people. Those ladies kicked some ass. Emily Pankhurst, at this stage, came to believe that a majority middle-class movement 
would not be able to break down these high walls built by the foundations of a man's world. She felt that it would be the martyrdom of individuals which would create a change. As ever, the indomitable Emmeline reached towards the extremes of rebellion, but others disagreed. The WSBU began splitting once more into two factions, which again represented a schism in the degree of violence to which the members were willing to go. The couple of years since Black Friday had seen a rise in aggression and militancy, but with as little effectiveness as the previous period of peaceful protests had. In March of 1912, after undergoing a force-feeding session of several other suffragettes, Emily Davison decided that enough was enough. Inspired by Emmeline's call to martyrdom, she thought that one big tragedy may save others. So in an act of self-sacrifice, she jumped from the interior prison balcony. She was caught by a net, but then immediately tried again, launching herself down the staircase. She cracked two vertebras and suffered a concussion. But the authorities were not moved by this to treat her with any less harshness. They still force-fed her, along with all the other suffragettes, regularly. They would teach these women a lesson. As a result of her dramatic actions, and in hopes to prevent her from severely harming herself, the WSPU distanced themselves from her. She was to a degree condemned by the family she had fought for, by the sisters whose cause had given her purpose and passion. This was a sad and lonely time for Emily. She found solace in her writing letters to the press and newspapers. She published 12 letters in the Manchester Guardian and did campaigning with all other suffragettes extremists throughout 1911 to 1913. She was even arrested one more time. Whether it was her feeling of isolation, the post-traumatic stress induced by force-feeding torture, the breakdown of solidarity within the WSPU, or just the overall struggle she had faced throughout her entire life because of her gender, or a mix of everything. Something fueled Emily to take extreme actions on the 4th of June 1913, which was the day of the Epsom Derby horse race. The Epsom Derby was Britain's richest and most prestigious horse racing event, which enticed a vast pool of British upper-class elite and rich, the exact crowd of people who had the kind of social and political clout that Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst were looking for. It's like the Melbourne Cup, but with way more posh people and way less binge drinking. For those of you who don't know what the Melbourne Cup is, it's like the Kentucky Derby with about 120,000 fewer mint juleps. As shared on many occasions, Emily had chosen the perfect gathering to protest the lack of women's suffrage. There is still much mystery and debate as to what Emily was trying to do, why she did it, or even if she planned to become a martyr. On the day of the derby, Emily bought a return ticket to Surrey. She had on her person two flags, which she had taken from the WSPU offices, bearing the suffragettes' colours, purple, white and green. Emily's mind must have been intent on her plan and its execution. She was meticulous, always. She would have walked through the large crowds of elite men and their property, their women adorned in hats that would have been seen as comically large, were it not for a golden age for comically large hats. The smell of horse excrement masked the floral perfumes, which masked the early 20th century sewage system, which smelled also like poo. The sounds of excited chatter and wine glasses being clinked together gave a festive spirit to the occasion. Everyone would have been debating on which horse they believed would be the victor in this race. 
Punters and bookies would have exchanged copious amounts of real money, but also false chat. It's unlikely that the social and economical hardships women had to endure in everyday life, Britain, would have been amidst any of it. As the race was beginning, with great enthusiasm in the air, Emily had only one thing on her mind, to head straight to the tracks. She tactically positioned herself on the final bend before the home stretch, known as Tattenham Corner, giving herself an unobstructed view of the race as the horses galloped towards her. All of her movements were thought out, as was her style. With one loud shot in the air and the screams of hundreds of spectators, the race began. The air around the track filled with dust as the sound of the horses' hooves hit the ground beneath them. It's impossible to know what, in those moments, would have been going through Emily's head. Here, amidst the carefree frivolity of the race, she stood, preparing for what she was about to do. The context of her life, all her struggles, achievements, all the things she had loved and everything she despised had brought her to this. Whether she paid much heed to all the people around her, we will never know. Did she resent the glee and material hope in their eyes, fixed more on a meaningless horse race than they had ever been on voting rights for women? Or did she just focus on her mission? whatever that was. As the majority of horses came thundering past, Emily steeled herself to act and ducked under the guard railing and ran onto the track. There is a video of this. Her focus was on a particular horse. The footage is scratchy, as you would expect from 1913, and everything of course is moving comically fast, as was the way with old film. It's hard to know exactly what Emily was aiming to do. The horse she was waiting for was called Unmer and was owned by King George V. Typically, whatever she had been intending to do, her strategy was to make as big a public statement as possible in her actions. Anmer was probably one or two meters away from Emily, running at over 50 kilometers an hour or 35 miles an hour, when she reached up to grab its reins or to attach something to them. As it were, what happened was exactly what you would expect if someone told you they were going to nimbly grab the reins of a horse running towards them at full gallop. Davison stepped in front of Anmir and its jockey, whose name was Herbert Jones, heard the gasps of the audience and would have tried to react. But it was all too quick and too late. Horse and jockey smashed into Emily, who somersaulted backwards like a limp doll. Anmir and Jones, still moving forward at a great rate, tumbled down towards the inside lane with Jones's foot caught in the stirrup. His leg wore the full weight of the horse, rolling over it as it hit the deck. All three were left prostrate on the ground, and only Anmir came out of it uninjured, which is a small victory in all this for horse enthusiasts. After the collision, bystanders ran onto the course in their masses, seeking to assist both Emily and Herbert. Medical personnel eventually arrived and took them both to the nearby Epson Cottage Hospital. Doctors operated on Emily for two days but she never regained consciousness and died of a fracture to the base of her skull on the 8th of June, four days later. Herbert would fully recover within three weeks and claimed to remember little or nothing about the Derby. He said much later that he was, quote, haunted by the face of that poor woman, end quote. He killed himself in 1951. The coroner in court ruled that Emily died from a fractured skull due to accidentally being knocked down by a horse when she willfully rushed into the racecourse. The official cause of death was misadventure. While she was lying on her deathbed in hospital, she received hate mail from men 
who were annoyed that a woman had ruined such an important sporting event as the Derby. King George and Queen Mary had been present at the event. Queen Mary would later describe the day in her diary in which she said that Emily Davison was, quote, a horrid woman for her actions, end quote. This written by a queen, a woman herself, who had little to no regard towards the reasons behind Emily's actions. On Emily's person, they found two suffragette flags, her ticket to the Derby, a return train ticket, and a ticket to a suffragette dance the following evening. This has caused much debate as to whether Emily's plan was to tie the suffragette flag to the horse when she ran out and grabbed the horse's reins, implying that she did not mean to get injured or become a martyr. Having purchased a return ticket made it seem as though she was planning on returning home. Others, especially other suffragettes, believed she had agreed with Emmeline that martyrdom was the only way to gain support and action for women's suffrage. These women felt that Emily had sacrificed herself for the cause, for the benefit of all women, for all those who had come before her, and for those, such as all my sisters and I today, who would come after. As we said before, the event was caught on camera. Three of them, actually. Most famously, a man who briefly pointed his camera at the scene when he heard the hysteria of the crowd as Emily ran towards the horse. But because no one appeared to be seriously injured, the camera quickly turned back to the race. He had no idea how important and valuable those few seconds of footage would be in the days, and indeed the years to come. This footage would be viewed by thousands of people from all classes and would become evidence of how desperate the situation of female inequality was and how hard the suffragettes would fight to overcome it. The constant airing of this footage and publishing of the photos in newspapers was capitalised on by the WSPU. They would have doubtless been shaken and sorrowful at Emily's demise. No matter how radical she was, she had been involved in so many actions and worked so hard for the solidarity and strength of her sisterhood. Many of them knew her well, and now she was gone. However, as Emmeline Pankhurst had pointed out, their cause needed martyrs, and Emily had now become this. The front page of the next edition of their women's rights newspaper, The Suffragettes, carried an image of a female angel in front of a race course. Emily's funeral was a massive public occasion. Thousands of spectators lined the route and watched on as more than 5,000 women marched behind the funeral car through the streets of London. The coffin was covered in purple, green and white laurel wreaths and was pulled along by four black horses. Safer being behind the horse than in front of it, even if you're dead. As divisive in death, as she had been in life. At one point, the procession almost turned ugly when young men cheered and waved their hats as the coffin went past. But the vast majority of people were simply there to pay their respects. The procession was even joined by hundreds of men who supported her, her cause and her actions. After her body was transported by train to Newcastle, she was eventually buried with her gravestone bearing the WSPU slogan, Deeds Not Words. If anyone can be said to be the embodiment of that moniker, surely it was Emily Davison. After her death, things began to change rapidly for women's rights and suffrage movements. Crucially, it gave more public exposure to their cause and hundreds of people, including men, began to join their fight. No longer could people ignore the reality of the plight for women. It was there, playing on repeat in black and white, on newsreels all around the country, with Emily's death, the suffragettes found renewed energy as well as an increased exposure for their cause. They began to turn up the heat, as they would have done on the oven many times before. 
Between June 1913 and May 1914, a series of militant actions were deployed throughout the UK, from England to Scotland to Ireland. During the last half of 1913, suffragettes' attacks included an attack on the glass cabinet in the Jewel House at the Tower of London, train stations were bombed, placards entitled Votes for Women and Burning for the Vote left among the debris. In Dumbarton, 20 telegraph wires were cut. In Kew Gardens, an orchid house was attacked and its treehouse burnt down. In Ilford, fire alarm wires of three streets were destroyed. In Dundee, Scotland, four postmen were seriously injured by phosphorus chemicals left in post boxes. Imagine the reaction if this kind of stuff was happening today. In 1914, the destruction of homes, pavilions and churches continued, with the year containing some of the most well-known attacks on works of art. London saw the brunt of these as a wave of cultural attacks hit the capital. Mary Richardson slashed the Rockabee Venus in the National Gallery in London. The British Museum had mummy caskets smashed and bombs were discovered in St Paul's and the Metropolitan Tabernacle, where a postcard was left bearing the words, Put your religion into practice and give women freedom. Christopher Pankhurst wrote, quote, If men use explosives and bombs for their own purposes, they call it war. And the throwing of a bomb that destroys other people is then described as glorious and heroic. Why should a woman not make use of the same weapons as men? It is not only war we have declared. We are fighting for a revolution. End quote. Newspapers such as the Gloucester Journal and the Liverpool Echo soon began to carry weekly summaries of all the attacks and reports of suffragette violence became evident across the country. Splayed on the front pages of newspapers, the government retaliated by producing and airing propaganda films about the suffragettes. These films depicted suffragettes as angry, rough women who left their hungry and abused children and men at home to attend suffragette rallies. The WSPU behaved and were organized like a regulated army of professional soldiers, seeing this period as a civil war between the sexes. These actions heavily mirrored the idea that this was war. The suffragettes were a woman's army in rebellion, fighting the good fight for the true cause. Directed by the Punkers leadership, their actions were specifically targeted, designed and chosen to terrorize the government and the general public. It was at this stage, however, that the Pankhurst leadership began to disintegrate due to disagreements about the direction the movement should take. Emmeline believed they should focus mostly on the struggle for upper and middle class women, since they were the ones she believed would be the most likely to gain suffrage. Her daughter Sylvia, though, being a pretty fierce communist, believed strongly in advocating for the rights of the entire working class to vote, including not just women, but men also. To this end, she founded the East London Federation of the WSPU, which was eventually expelled from the WSPU in early 1914. It was renamed the East London Federation of Suffragettes and focused on the collective actions of the workers. When the Great War broke out, Emmeline Pankhurst called a meeting of suffragettes and spoke these words, quote, What is the use for fighting for a vote? if we have not got a country to vote in." End quote. The WSPU seized all suffragette activities, turning their forces, time, effort, resources and bravery towards supporting the war effort. Militant attacks, hunger strikes and public demonstrations all stopped. In response to this truce, but also because all help would be needed, the British government released all incarcerated suffragettes in August of 1914. 
They received amnesty, leading to many suffragettes as well as many other women eagerly volunteering to take on traditional male roles while all the men were on the battlefield. Once more, women were proving more than capable of doing anything a man could. The suffragettes were truly incredible during the war, proving invaluable to the effort of Britain's home front. It's worth pointing out that suffragettes became so invested in the war effort and so aligned with the establishment that very early on, some of them, including Emmeline and Christabel Pankhurst, joined in the White Feather campaign. This was an initiative to publicly shame men of fighting age who had not yet joined the army. Sylvia Pankhurst, who was opposed to the war, wrote later that her mother made recruitment speeches around the country and that these, quote, her supporters handed the white feathers to every young man they encountered wearing civilian dress, end quote. The idea was that everyone on the street would then know that whoever had a white feather on them was too cowardly to do their duty. Sylvia goes on to explain that they made placards and held them up in public. These rebels for women's rights wrote on the placards, of the rebels who were defying military service. In turn, them all. Sylvia was horrified by her mother's pro-establishment stance, and certainly not all suffragists were for the war. It is just interesting to see how people who stand together on one cause can oppose each other on another. The suffragists organized and operated hundreds of hospitals, especially on the front line, but most vitally, the suffragettes worked in ammunition factories, producing ammunition to supply the British army with the very capability to fight the war. Without their vital work, it is questionable that Britain could have sustained itself through the years of war as they would. During the war, suffragettes once again very clearly used newsreels media to keep their cause in the public consciousness, even throughout wartime. They created films to be aired along with all the other war footage. They made sure these films caught the suffragette signage on all the hospitals, trucks and factories. If you watched a film showing the Scottish Women's Hospital, there would be a truck with a sign reading Scottish Woman Hospital by the NUWSS or WSPU. This media exposure made it impossible to deny women's involvement in the war and aided not only in them receiving the acknowledgement but also in winning support for women's rights in general. The nation was in crisis in 1916. The war had drained everybody's energy and resources. Early in the year, conscription was introduced, but it didn't make events in the war go any better for the British. The East Uprising erupted in Ireland. The Battle of Somme had led to over 450,000 British casualties. Politicians like David Lloyd George were pushing to take control of the war from the generals who had sent so many thousands of thousands to their death. Yet another political crisis erupted, and from it, Lloyd George emerged as Prime Minister. David Lloyd George was keen to expand suffrage in general, not only for women but also for men. There hadn't been an election in Britain since 1910, and the occurrence of the war had changed everything. There had always been tight restrictions on enfranchisement, and one of them was the need to remain perpetually resident. Soldiers going to war were losing their rights by being at war. This was a result of the passage of the Representation of the People's Act 1918 in February 1918. This act allowed all men over the age of 21 years old the right to full suffrage. But also, amazingly, finally, some female suffrage too. 
Yay! Woohoo! Now a woman over the age of 30 years old and who owns some form of property were allowed to vote in general elections. Now, independent, middle-aged women have the same involvement in decisions of their lives as a 21-year-old boy. Brilliant! As the war ended in November 1918, the Parliament Act 1918 was passed. This act allowed women the right to be elected and stand for public office. Three decades after women in Britain had started an organized struggle for the right to suffrage, all women over 30 years old had finally achieved it. Women all over the UK took to the streets to celebrate. Mrs. Punkhurst and all her daughters, including Sylvia, would, with heads held high and a proud heart, walk into Parliament to witness the signing of this truly deserved bill. The very next day, newspapers and the streets would be covered in posters, banners and articles celebrating. Some posters read, Will our near future see women MPs? Ten years later, in 1928, Parliament passed the bill which allowed all women over the age of 21 years to gain full suffrage. Victory for the suffragettes was complete, even though the fight for women's rights would continue. In analysing their struggle, the questions often asked are much of the same nature as the issue they debated and disagreed upon themselves. Did their cause require violence? Did they need to delve into the extreme realm of rebellion to succeed? Or would peaceful protest have led to the same ends? Within the wider historical context, in an era when the pursuit of individual liberties within a class, race and gender biased society meant that that society was possibly plodding along a path of progress regardless and indeed in spite of itself, the suffragette movement may have just been a small part of a larger driving force towards democratization. Perhaps their violent tactics actually worked negatively for them, keeping the wider public wary of their end because of their means, and so the reforms they demanded were denied, such as Herbert Asquith had done in 1910. There is no doubt that Emily Davison's martyrdom, whether intended or not, gave an icon by which the cause of women's suffrage could be identified in the imaginations of the British public, including those in the upper levels of power and decision-making. The crucial role of the suffragettes during World War I doubtless contributed to their standing in the public eye, as there was a national reconsideration of what women could contribute to society, and those new considerations took women out of the household. Perhaps it was this, more than their activism, that finally broke through the wall of electoral misogyny. Many at the time strongly believed that the militant suffragists' actions damaged their plight, delaying the process that would ultimately lead to them receiving suffrage. They felt these actions fed into an image politicians and men had created around women. Their violent outbursts showed that women were controlled by their emotions, incapable of using logic and reason to govern their actions. In essence, some felt that these actions made the movement unpopular, which would be the most damaging blow to their cause. Although Albert Einstein was at times thought to be a controlling sexist, one of his quotes is relevant to this debate. Quote, What is right is not always popular, and what is popular is not always right. End quote. Although this was the less popular method, 
that doesn't translate into their actions not contributing to women gaining the vote. The argument of fighting violence or force of more violence and force is one of many considerations, often surrounded by a grey area. To a degree, it's a survival tactic, instinctual, fight or flight. Many believe that human evolution shows that a true indication of growth is intelligence. Hence, it's better to use brain, not brawn. Diplomacy to settle conflict. There is also another card we tend to overlook. The Joker, a force in between nature versus nurture, the human spirit. This is a drive which will withstand a certain amount of unjust oppression before pushing back. It's triggered by instinct, driven by emotion, and if fighting against violation of human rights, it's an evolutionary reaction. We are able to identify and understand the principles against oppression. Tell me that only women do that. And anyway, the true debate to be had should not be whether the use of militant tactics by these women was the correct approach to institutionalized sexism. Instead, we should be discussing why women were pushed towards this conclusion in their struggle. Women should not have been put in the position where they had to even consider using force to defend their basic rights in the first place. At the time in history that we've explored today, suffragettes suffered horribly for the benefit of not just themselves, but all women. This was whether all women agreed with them or not. And whether their tactics were effective or a hindrance, there is no doubt that they brought this fight into the public eye and into the discourse of the private home. Because they made so much noise, it didn't matter if their militancy damaged the reputation of the members of the WSPU. It was because of them that every person in Britain knew about the women's suffrage. People across the nation experienced the pain of women's pursuit of suffrage through these women's actions and the ramifications they suffered. It was because of their struggles that politicians, men and the general public were no longer able to turn a blind eye to the subject. As a woman, I have these suffragettes to thank for the rights I have today. But also for the gains made after them. They caused a ripple effect that would cross the globe. For now we had one legal rights. A fully democratic society today is one in which every woman of any age can vote. We women in those societies are so far down the path of suffrage that we actually culturally have no memory of what it was like to have no say. So much so that some of us even choose not to have a say and feel empowered enough to justify it. The suffragettes and their contemporaries, through their rebellion, broke the mold of what society expected from a woman and they succeeded in achieving greater political representation for women in Europe than had ever been seen before. They showed the world that we were stronger and more capable than what had been generally perceived previously. But legal and electoral rights, as well as being perceived as potentially badass, were not and are not the end game for women. Legal rights don't necessarily change culture, especially not thousands of years worth of it. We may have been able to vote and work, but we were still limited by the confines of society's expectations. Who we are, what we do, whether we marry or have kids. Women's general rebellion and pursuit for liberation was moving forward at a quicker rate than ever before after the suffragettes. In the 60s and 70s, we would see the struggle move into a new phase. But that will have to wait for the next episode.
Well, a massive thank you very much to Dominic Reviglio for conveying that story, explaining exactly why we are the shitheads that we are. Dom will be back with the follow-up episode, episode two of this series, which will convey the second wave of feminism in the 20th century. Of course, those regular listeners uh, amongst you might be noticing that we are due a concluding episode of our abolition series. This one will be on John Brown. That is due to come anytime in the irregular future. This time of year, of course, a few things are going on. It is summertime here in the Netherlands. We're out enjoying it. Uh, it's also the World Cup is on. Uh, this might not be uh, familiar to some of you out there, especially those in North America, but in eight years, you'll know exactly what that's about when... Uh, the team actually qualifies. <laughs> Don't forget to check us out at all our usual outlets, and we'll see you next time on Stuff What You Tell Me. Stuff What You Tell Me is a part of the Recorded History Podcast Network. It's produced by Julian Smith and Joe Wegasani.